Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Kayla Klinkenbid, a PhD student at the New School for Social Research. We'll be talking about Kayla's doctoral research on trust and epistemic responsibility, as well as her experiences publishing an article in a topical collection. If you'd like to get in touch with Kayla, you can reach out to her via email at clinc719 at newschool.edu. Kayla Klinkenbeard, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you wrote to us saying you had a few career options in mind, like many of our guests who aren't born thinking they're going to be philosophers. So can you tell us a little bit about the different careers you were contemplating before philosophy? Sure. So I initially thought I was going to be a lawyer. That's what my family wanted me to be. And then I thought, you know, I'm really interested in journalism. I want to do some hardcore investigative journalism. And then I thought, I took a journalism class and I thought, I hate this. Absolutely hate this. I'm never doing this. And then I got really into my English literature classes and I thought maybe I'll be a literature professor. And, you know, I still love literature, but one, my advisor recommended that I take a philosophy class and for an elective. And I took an ethics class and I thought, wow, these are the exact questions that I care about pursuing answers to. So I was, that was kind of it for me. I pretty much never went back after that. Although I do have a degree in English and political science, philosophy was actually not offered as a major at first. And that's why I went back and did a philosophy major after it was offered. What were the kinds of questions that drew you in? And are they the same questions that you're thinking about now? That's a good question. There was really no area of philosophy that I didn't find interesting. Just, you know, what is it to have a good life? What is it to be a good person? What is it to have knowledge, to do science, to have a mind? I was really initially interested in the mind-body problem and specifically what consciousness is. And that's what I thought I was going to do my PhD on. I thought I was going to pursue questions of like the demarcation question about, you know, what distinguishes human minds from non-human minds and intentionality and that kind of stuff. But then after all the political upheaval, I radically changed my dissertation project and (laughs) I just became obsessed with the question of why do people trust untrustworthy people and why can't we change their minds? Why can't we convince them that the sources that they're relying on are untrustworthy? And uh, that's pretty much what I've stuck to the past several years. Yeah, a topical set of questions indeed. Though I'm curious, you mentioned it was response in response to political upheaval. And I'm wondering if there are any you know, events or you know things going on in particular that drew you into those set of questions. Well. You know, during the 2016 election, there were a lot of people discussing whether we live in the same reality as 
people who voted for Trump. And, you know, I'm from Texas, (laughs) rural Texas, no less. (laughs) And these people that were being described as living in a different reality are people that I deeply love and care about. And I was unable to live with the idea that you know, we live in a radically different world than they, than they do, or that we're unable to have, you know, productive conversations with them. And so, yeah, I kind of had a mental breakdown during this time. And I was not very productive for a while because of that. And then afterwards, you know, I've slowly started to make sense of what I think has caused it to be difficult for us to have productive conversations. Yeah, that's what my dissertation is trying to explain. Mm. I hope that makes sense. That makes complete sense. And it was honestly a quite relatable experience for me. I I was also trying to, after 2016, trying to ra- sort of rationalize rationalize what happened. But then I think I had like some personal interactions with people in my family. And I was just like, what's, what's going on here exactly? Like, what is causing them to, I guess, to believe or or see the world in such a different way? And so I was, I was also motivated by like those big political changes that, that I noticed were, that did lead to just big changes in what some people believed and what I believed. And I think you mentioned al- already in your answer, something to do with the notion of trust, which I think is crucial to, um, well, first of all, it seems like a really important concept for what you were discussing just there, but it's what your dissertation research seems to be focusing on, which is this interesting relationship between trust and knowledge, two things that interact better together than the mind and the body famously. So can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, the notion of trust that you're working with here and what you take the relationship to be between it and knowledge? Sure. So There's been a lot of research recently into how knowledge depends on trust and, you know, almost nothing that we know is something that we can justify our knowledge ourselves. You know, we, I can't explain to you how I know that the earth is spherical, you know, (laughs) without relying on other people's explanations or their photos from space or what have you. There's almost nothing that we know that does not depend on our trust in others in some way. And the question is, how is trust capable of producing knowledge? That's one question. But my focus is really more on once we assume that knowledge depends on trust, which I think is a fair assumption, What problems arise when we don't trust, when we distrust people who have knowledge, who could help us to improve our own knowledge, or when the people who we trust abuse our trust and mislead us or make us more ignorant than we were before trusting them? And that is really the focus of my research. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so if we start from the from the bottom up, then your project is starting with an assumption that we're granting, which you take to be an, a plausible assumption that there is some strong relationship between trust and the attainment of knowledge. How strong is this relationship? Is trust a necessary condition of acquiring knowledge? Is it a necessary condition of acquiring knowledge only in certain relationships? Or is the relationship between trust and the acquisition of knowledge somewhat weaker than that? Well, that's a really good question. And I think it depends on what kind of knowledge we're talking about. So often 
philosophers who study knowledge from trust will make a distinction between like perceptual knowledge, which doesn't seem to require trusting others. And that is for some people a reason to trust it more (laughs) because we're not relying on other people when we have perceptual knowledge, right? And then there's memory, there's, you know, there are various kinds of knowledge. But what I am interested in is the knowledge that we have that we can't justify from our own evidential resources, right? I trust what you tell me. That's a kind of testimonial knowledge that's thought of as a distinctive kind of knowledge that does require trust. Mm. And, you know, there are arguments about whether trust is necessary or, you know, whether rather what you really need is just evidence that the speaker knows what they're talking about or something. And Mm. then trust isn't really playing a significant role there. I think that trust is necessary for a great deal of knowledge. I'm not going to say all knowledge, but I think it's at least plausible that trust is necessary for a lot of the things that we take ourselves to know. Hmm. And I will call that necessary. (laughs) That's great. I mean, so I guess one, one distinction that you sometimes see people make, I think this is mostly in the, just the general literature on trust, but maybe this is also in the sort of the social epistemological side of trust, which we're looking at right now. But what you described to me, could one interpret what you said as not trusting testimonial resources, but kind of relying on them? And is there like some meaningful distinction between like, like, it seems like trust, there's like a little more to it than just like, from what you've said right now, it sounds like it could just be cashed out as just relying on what other people say. But it seems like trust has this like slightly more value laden component, right? Do you think about trust in a slightly thicker sense? I do. Annette Bayer's work on trust and antitrust is the seminal work that distinguishes trust from mere reliance, right? She says that trust is something that can be betrayed. Whereas if someone, if I'm relying on someone to act in a way that I expect them to act, you know, every day Kant passes the same part of the courtyard at the exact same time, you know, it's not betraying my trust if he takes a day off, you know, if he decides not to take his usual route, even if I relied on him to tell the time, because I know he always comes at this particular time of day. And trust is really involves more of a relationship where the person who is trusted seems to bear responsibility to the person who trusts them in a way that's distinctive from mere reliance. And I think that there can be cases where a speaker might say something that I rely on in a way that doesn't quite meet the full responsibility that trust in Annette Bayer's really rich sense that doesn't meet that kind of criteria. But I think that the lines do get blurry. I mean, often what philosophers who study trust and testimony will say is that we can blame a person for telling us something false if they present themselves as if 
they are telling us and taking responsibility for what they say. And, you know, if they just casually make some claim and they're not presenting themselves as if they're telling us, if they're not acting as if they are, they take themselves to be an informant in some respect, then we are not really justified in blaming them as merely if we're just relying on overhearing conversations that other people are having versus someone is telling me, I promise that this is true. You know, so telling is often held as analogous to promising. And that is what makes it be a matter of responsibility in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. But I want to probe you on this notion of responsibility that you're talking about, because I, I gather that it's this notion of, of responsibility, um, of epistemic responsibility, that plays quite a large role, actually, in your thesis. In your account, who is the bearer of this epistemic responsibility? Do individuals bear this responsibility? Do perhaps groups or organizations bear this responsibility? Do we all bear the responsibility or do you have some other way of cashing it out? That's a good question. And it's not easy to answer because I think it depends on what we're talking about. Responsibility for what exactly? I try to narrow the focus of what we're talking about with epistemic responsibility by thinking about what is the claim that's being made? What is the purported knowledge about? You know, I think of this as like, there are lots of epistemic questions like, do we know that tobacco causes cancer? And there are particular views on that question, like, yes, science knows that tobacco causes cancer. Or we're skeptical about whether tobacco causes cancer. And the people who corroborate or provide reasons for believing those views are the people that I think are responsible for it. I think that we rarely ever just trust one person. If you think about it, if just one person told you that the earth is a sphere, you know, uh, would that have a lot of credibility or weight? I don't think so. I think that the way that knowledge works is that there are a set of knowledge producers, people who are experts or who have institutional backing, who are working for news organizations or what have you, who are in a position to know they have the right credentials, they have the right competence, they have access to evidence, reasons for trusting their judgment. And they corroborate, they support views. And that's what makes them appear credible, is that a lot of people who have met our standards for thinking that someone is a person with authority on this question, they support that view. And that gives us reasons for believing it. And I don't think that individual models of epistemic responsibility really capture how credibility works because 
like I said, we rarely ever trust a single person about really complex topics like vaccine safety or climate change. You know, there are a host of people who are relying on each other to obtain accurate information about that question. I argue they are the appropriate bearer of epistemic responsibility. Yeah. Well, I guess that's really interesting because one of the immediate implications of the view, it seems like to me, is when the person who believes the earth is flat or the person who, you know, is, I, I guess, maybe an anti-vaxxer could come up into this discussion as well. But when people believe that way, let's say they're so epistemically vulnerable because of all the kinds of pe- people that the trust has to pass through, through that like network that you were describing. Does that mean that like, when they fail to believe it's just not on them or they're unlucky in some respects? Or do you think that, you know, if we are going to say, do you think that the worry with saying they're just unlucky or it's not really their responsibility, it's not their fault that they believe incorrectly now, is the worry something like, okay, but, you know, these networks do exist that are credible. And yet to some extent, there must be some agency on the part of the person who believes the earth is flat that just flatly denies that there are these reliable institutions or reliable networks. So yeah, how do you think about, I guess, the that could be one of the interesting implications of your view? That's a really great question. And that's a large part of the motivation of my work is to make sense of how individuals who believe these epistemically responsible knowledge producers I think that epistemologists tend to focus on individual responsibility for their beliefs, right? We tend to focus on whether you're justified in trusting X or Y. And I think that in the case of a lot of the disinformation campaigns that are out there in particular, the people who are supporting these views look like they have the credentials that would give people good reasons for believing. And I think that it's not really a fair criticism to claim that the people who believe them are, you know, epistemically blameworthy for believing badly. I think that Most of us aren't going to go out there and do all the research on all of these different topics for ourselves to find out, you know, if climate change is really real. (laughs) You know, I think that that's not a reasonable expectation of people. I think we have limited cognitive resources. We're all just trying to live our lives. We ought to be able to trust each other. That's the problem that we need to focus on. Given that the world is such that it's so, it's impossible for us to get by without trusting each other, that means that it is extremely important that the people who are trusted are trustworthy, that our trust isn't abused. And I think when trust is abused, we give people reasons for doubting whether they ought to trust us that creates an environment of distrust that is problematic when we need to do big things together like combat climate change or take vaccines to control COVID-19, etc. So I don't know if that answers your question, but 
I don't think that it, the focus should be on the people who believe knowledge producers so much as how the people who we have reasons for trusting abuse that trust. I think that should be our focus. Yes, absolutely. And, and it was really great before recording the episode to, to read some of the work that, that you've got out there about the responsibilities that the trusted have. So your paper entitled Collective Deception Toward a Network Model of Epistemic Responsibility. This paper I was interested to see was um, published in a topical collection in a very good journal. And I'd be interested to talk about what the um, process was by which you came about getting that publication. Did this come about through a call for papers or a call for abstracts? Um, And do you have any advice for for graduate students who perhaps see a call for papers or a call for abstracts in a topical collection on an area that they work on that they think they might want to submit to? My advisor actually saw the call for papers and he thought that since I was already working on trying to make sense of Jennifer Lackey's book, The Epistemology of Groups, where she argues about how we can hold groups responsible for lies and bullshit. I was trying to gather my thoughts on, I thought that there was a problem with her work, but I hadn't really pinned pinned it down yet. And he said, you know, this topical collection seems like it would be perfect for you. Maybe you should try to meet the deadline. And I only had a few months before the deadline. So I did my best and I submitted and they asked me for some revisions and I did that. And I think that the reason why the process went so well for me is that this is a really niche topic, you know, (laughs) it's a very niche topic. And the people who are reviewing for this special issue are our topical collection are already interested in this niche topic. And so they were really sympathetic to what I was trying to do, even though I wasn't quite sure how to do it perfectly well. And they gave me really helpful feedback. They had already read the literature that I was referring to, and they helped me improve the paper significantly. And so I strongly recommend for a good publishing experience. I've heard horror stories about people getting rejected without any feedback or et cetera. I think applying for or submitting to a topical collection is a good way to get really high quality feedback that can help you improve your paper. And also it showcases your work in a unique way because people are more likely to look at articles in a topical collection as opposed to freestanding articles. Well, Kayla, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.